Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we talk with Dr. Will Burns, co-director of the Institute for Carbon Removal Law and Policy at American University. Will and I will talk about the approaches and technologies that might be helpful in removing large amounts of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. We'll talk about what governments and companies are doing to encourage the deployment of these options, and we'll discuss some of the risks and challenges that each approach brings. Stay with us. Okay, Will Burns from the Institute for Carbon Removal, thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. It's great to be here. So, Will, we're going to talk today about carbon dioxide removal, uh, sometimes referred to as CDR, but we're going to try to avoid the acronym if we can, although I'm sure I'll, uh, you know, bark it out at some point. Um, But before we get into uh, the substance of our conversation, can you tell us a little bit about how you got interested and how you started working on environmental issues? Yeah, I was I was very interested in in animals when I was young, despite the fact that I grew up in a in an urban environment, and I became increasingly concerned about the the threats to to species, and worked uh, originally with a, a think tank that focused on wildlife issues, and increasingly one of the primary threats to wildlife became uh, climate change, and so it became a, a natural migration to f- focusing on on climate issues, uh, ultimately toward the midpoint of my career. That's really interesting. Um, yeah, we've done some episodes on biodiversity and, and other wildlife issues. And the thing this makes me, your comment makes me think of is my toddler who knows about 10 words and three of them are names of animals, dog, cat, and fox. Absolutely. We have a profound uh, uh, connection, though now we have to figure out a better way to, uh, to be better stewards. Yeah. Well, let's get started in our conversation about carbon dioxide removal by just simply defining the term. So can you tell us uh, what the term means and then give us a brief introduction to some of the specific technologies that, that actually constitute carbon dioxide removal? Sure. So carbon dioxide removal uh, refers to processes or technologies that can actually remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere after it's emitted. So by contrast with, uh, with efforts to decarbonize the economy, to reduce uh, the greenhouse gas emissions that cause uh, climate change, uh, carbon dioxide removal efforts seek to actually remove some of the carbon dioxide that's already in the atmosphere. And by doing so, it reduces the, um, uh, the trapping of outgoing radiation that, that causes the warming that's associated with climate change. Great. That's really helpful. Can you um, maybe just outline a couple of the you know, relevant technologies, you know, ways that one might actually be able to remove uh, carbon dioxide from the atmosphere? Sure. I'll, I'll, I'll try to highlight uh, about four or five of the, the main ones that are being discussed. So uh, one of them is, is afforestation and reforestation. So there are proposals to try to substantially increase the planting of trees where they may have existed before and have been uh, felled or harvested or lost in other ways, uh, or to plant trees in areas where we haven't before. As you know, trees take up carbon dioxide for the photosynthetic process, and so uh, they can remove remove carbon dioxide. Another uh, approach that's being discussed is something called bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. 
The idea here is to use bioenergy feedstocks to produce energy, things like trees or, or, uh, or crops or crop residues. And then uh, when we uh, uh, burn those uh, feedstocks to produce uh, 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 heat or electricity or we use them to produce biofuels, we then capture the uh, carbon dioxide from the, from the flue stack and we can uh, pressurize it into a liquid and then ship it for storage either in terrestrial uh, areas such as uh, saline aquifers or, or in the world's oceans. And the idea here is that it's a quote-unquote negative emissions technology because when you plant the biofuel uh, feedstock, it stores carbon dioxide and then you capture uh, the the output of, of carbon dioxide and then you plant more of these bioenergy feedstocks to, to keep the loop uh, uh, moving. Uh, another approach we're talking about is direct air capture. This technology involves uh, introducing uh, ambient air uh, across an absorbent uh, system that's comprised of something such as calcium or potassium hydroxide solutions or, or amine solutions, uh, which separates out the carbon dioxide from the other constituent elements of the air. Again, it can then be pressurized into a liquid form, it can be stored, or it can be uh, utilized um, for things such as uh, chemicals or high-strength materials, or maybe even in the future for uh, synthetic uh, fuels. Mm -hmm. uh, Another approach is called enhanced mineral weathering. Uh, over uh, thousands and millions of years, uh, certain rocks as they weather, uh, the rocks that contain high amounts of silicates such as olivine, uh, uh, take up carbon dioxide, ultimately convert that carbon dioxide into carbonates and bicarbonates, and those materials ultimately wash into the, uh, the world's oceans and are stored sometimes for thousands of years. And the idea behind enhanced mineral weathering is to try to massively accelerate that process by grinding up large amounts of rock, spreading it on areas such as croplands where it could have co-benefits of enhancing uh, productivity, and then taking up uh, carbon dioxide at a much faster uh, rate and then ultimately storing it. And then uh, the last uh, suite of, of things that I'd emphasize would be ocean-based approaches. Uh, there's proposals uh, to try to increase uh, the amount of phytoplankton in the world's oceans. Phytoplankton take up carbon dioxide. They're responsible for about half of the photosynthesis on Earth. Uh, some scientists believe that there are areas where there's a critical shortage of, of a micronutrient, which is iron for phytoplankton production. And so they propose spreading iron filings over areas such as the Southern Ocean to increase phytoplankton production, which in turn would take in carbon dioxide. And then when those phytoplankton die, uh, it would take some of that carbon dioxide to the bottom of the ocean where it would be stored in sediments for, for hundreds of years. Uh, the other, uh, one of the other ideas in the ocean is called ocean alkalinity enhancement, and this is utilizing uh, things such as olivine again or limestone to increase alkalinity in the ocean. And by doing so, again, it would ultimately convert uh, carbon dioxide into uh, bicarbonates and carbonates and, and, and could store them uh, in the oceans potentially for thousands of years. 
Great. That's really useful. Thank you for, for those descriptions. And um, I imagine our listeners are thinking as they hear the descriptions of these of some of the you know potential benefits, co-benefits, and some of the risks of these technologies. And we will talk about, uh, we will talk about that in a few minutes. But first, can you uh, give us a little bit of an idea for you know why, why are we talking about carbon dioxide removal? Sometimes when I have conversations with people about this topic, the first thing they say is, well, why are we even thinking about carbon dioxide removal? Don't we just need to think about reducing emissions from uh, from our from our current sources? Why are we Why are we trying to go negative? Right. Yeah, it's a very good question. Well, there's a couple of reasons. One is the fact that at least in theory, uh, we we should be getting our act together and aggressively decarbonizing, but we're not. Uh, if you look at uh, at the Paris Agreement, uh, which calls for us to uh, reduce temperatures to, to well below 2 degrees Celsius and at least aspirationally to 1.5 degrees Celsius, um, there is a, a massive gap uh, between what would be necessary to effectuate that from year to year and what we're doing. And, and when I say massive, I mean somewhere between 15 to 20 billion tons of carbon dioxide between what we should be reducing emissions by and what we are reducing emissions by. And uh, the United Nations Environment Program just released a new report that indicated that even though the pledges that countries have made have, are inadequate on their face, only seven of 24 of the major emitters are even meeting those pledges. And so the fact is that at least at this point, we lack the political resolve to do what would be necessary uh, to uh, to decarbonize the economy in a way that comports with what, what Paris is calling for. Uh, the other issue is we have put so much, uh, so much of these greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, and they stay in the atmosphere for so long that we're already uh, close to passing critical thresholds. And so even at this point, if we start massive, uh, aggressive decarbonizing, uh, it's likely that we would pass these thresholds without substantial amounts of carbon dioxide removal. Uh, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is the leading uh, international scientific body on climate issues, uh, ran all of these scenarios to hold temperatures to below 2 degrees Celsius. And 87% of those contemplated large-scale use of carbon dioxide removal technologies, meaning that ultimately by the middle of the century, we probably have to be removing somewhere between 15 to 20 billion tons from the atmosphere, uh, along with aggressive decarbonization to, uh, to be able to achieve these goals. And so uh, it's, it's, not, it's not an either or. Uh, if we don't aggressively decarbonize, carbon dioxide removal technologies cannot be a silver bullet that, that saves our bacon. Uh, but at the same time, even if we do aggressively decarbonize at this point, uh, it's, it's, uh, we're going to need uh, substantial commitments to carbon dioxide removal simultaneously. Right. So you talked us through some of the major technologies a few minutes ago. Can you talk now about which specific technologies you think might be most likely to be deployed at large scale? So which of which of the technologies might be sort of at the head of the pack, if you will? Yeah, it's, you know, I hate to hedge on this, but it's, it's hard for us to know at this point because a lot of these technologies simply are at, at either a, a, a bench research scale or at small prototype scales at this point. Um, for example, direct air capture, 
Uh, we only have a few pilot plants, and we're not sure if we're going to be able to scale them up substantially. Uh, some of the others, there's real questions of sustainability. Uh, bioenergy with carbon capture and storage might require huge amounts of diversion of agricultural lands, which could raise food prices. Uh, it could require huge amounts of water. Uh, so it's likely uh, that we're not going to be able to scale that up to maybe more than like one or two gigatons of, of carbon dioxide removal annually, right? Which means that some of these others are going to have to uh, uh, really step up the game if, if we're going to get to where we need to be. Uh, direct air capture, uh, if, if it can be, if its cost can be brought down, if, uh, if the energy requirements can, can be brought down, uh, might have the greatest prospects. Uh, there's some estimates uh, that we could sequester somewhere between 7 to 22 billion tons of carbon dioxide annually with direct air capture. Uh, it has a lot uh, fewer risks in terms of uh, land use diversion and water, uh, but uh, cost still remains a question, and we won't really know that until uh, we scale up. And unfortunately, that's, that's a major, major challenge in terms of the, the incentive structures right now to, uh, uh, to do so. Uh, enhanced mineral weathering uh, has high energy requirements. Uh, it has some risks in terms of, uh, of fine particulates. Uh, it requires uh, 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 large amounts of extraction of, of rocks, and, uh, and so it's probably going to play a, a fairly small role. Uh, the ocean approaches have, uh, especially the alkalinity approach, has high potential, uh, but it also may have some high risks in terms of uh, uh, effects on ecosystems, and we need a lot more characterization. So we're at, we're at early stages. Um, the one we know the most about is planting trees, uh, but that's not without risk either. If you, if you plant huge amounts of trees, you may have to do a lot of it on areas that were grasslands, for example, and that could have some real biodiversity uh, impacts, uh, could require large amounts of fertilizer and water. Uh, we're afraid of land grabs from people that rely on these areas for their livelihoods, and so we need a lot more characterization in that context also. So we're, we're at a very early days in terms of determining what the optimal mix would be and how much we can scale these up and how quickly. Right. That's all really well said and, and so useful to keep in mind that uh, there are a lot of questions we need answered uh, before, you know, these things are scaled uh, to the scale that, that that would be necessary to sort of achieve um, the large emissions uh, reductions that we're talking about here. Um, can you talk now a, a little bit about what are some of the big efforts that governments or private groups are currently under undergoing or pursuing to kind of push these technologies out into the world to either do research on them so that we understand some of the potential trade-offs or maybe to actually start deploying them in the world and, and see what we learn from either pilot experiments or smaller scale uh, deployment of some of these technologies? Right. Well, we have some efforts in on almost all of these technologies that um, that we talked about. For example, uh, when we look at, um, at bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, uh, there are a few uh, pilot plants in the world. I think there's approximately 15 of them at this point, and uh, uh, all at relatively modest scale. So we're, we're starting to learn uh, what, what those capabilities are. Uh, direct air capture, there are uh, th three companies at the top of the pack that are all developing 
pilot plants that they believe can bring the cost down, because cost is the biggest consideration when it, when it comes to direct air capture, to perhaps uh, $200, maybe $100 per ton of carbon that's captured, at which point in, in the future uh, it could be economically uh, viable. Um, a lot of these others that we're talking about, things like enhanced mineral weathering and the ocean-based approaches, uh, there's, uh, there's been some field experiments in terms of ocean iron fertilization. Uh, the other two primarily remain uh, largely uh, uh, in the lab. Uh, that may change uh, quickly. One of the interesting things that's happening in the last year is you have a number of corporations, uh, including Microsoft, Stripe, Salesforce, uh, that have started pledging uh, that they are going to move to either uh, carbon neutrality or, or net negative uh, emissions uh, over the course of the next couple of decades. And they are starting to put funding into some of these uh, things. For example, Stripe this week announced that it is going to uh, fund uh, four of these different approaches, including some funding for enhanced mineral weathering, which really hasn't had much funding at all uh, to this point. So if corporate initiatives uh, really start uh, picking up steam, uh, it may be that that provides a lot of the private sector funding that's critical uh, to characterize these and determine which ones might be uh, most viable. But uh, it's, it's a major challenge. Uh, these things aren't likely to be adopted by corporations with the price of carbon that we have right now uh, and, and, and the fact that they have to compete with fossil fuels uh, that are still massively subsidized. And the research programs and governments remain pretty modest in, in, in most of these contexts. Right. Yeah, and the price of carbon that you mentioned in most places in the world being zero. Yes, um, exactly. <laughs> which is an important number. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, the, that's really useful. Are, are there, you know, one topic that I hear about uh, in the news, and I, I haven't read read up on very much. Uh, we have some colleagues at RFF who, who think hard about reforestation and afforestation. Um, there have been some announcements from governments about pledges to do large-scale uh, tree planting. Um, can you talk a little bit about kind of where those um, efforts stand, or at least where those commitments stand? Right. So one of the one of the things that's been developed in the last couple of years is something called the Trillion Trees Initiative. And even uh, President Trump, who's normally pretty hostile to to climate initiatives, uh, endorsed uh, this Trillion Trees Initiative at at the at the latest Davos summit. Uh, so the idea would be exactly that, uh, planting a, a, a trillion trees. Uh, there was a study a year ago uh, that said that if you planted trees on about uh, 900 million hectares of land, which is about 2.2 billion acres, um, you could store uh, around 200 billion tons of, of carbon dioxide, right? And that would, that would be a substantial part of this portfolio that we were talking about, because ultimately... A lot of people think that by the end of the century, we need to store about a thousand uh, gigatons or a thousand billion tons of carbon dioxide, right, through carbon dioxide removal. So that would be about a fifth of the way. The problem is, well, there's a lot of problems with talking about tree planting at that kind of scale, right? One is that these studies don't often account for the fact that the current ecosystems in which you would plant these trees are already starring a lot of carbon. And that might 
um, might be as much as 85% of all the carbon that you're talking about through planting trees. Um, another thing is uh, you, if you're going to plant that many trees and you're going to encompass 2.2 billion acres of land, which is about, I believe, a third of the size of Africa, uh, Ooh, you're likely, wow. yeah, it's, it's a large uh, amount of land. Um, you're going to have to uh, try to avoid uh, land conflicts. And one of the areas that we're talking about planting a lot of trees would be in snow-covered regions. Well, in snow-covered regions, uh, we, uh, a lot of the incoming solar radiation is reflected away because uh, these are ref highly reflective surfaces, ice surfaces. If you start to plant trees, it starts to absorb more of the incoming radiation, which means that it exerts a warming impact that might offset the benefits of, of sucking up more carbon dioxide, right? So the science is very complicated, and, and some of these researchers uh, don't acknowledge really what, what, what that might mean. Uh, the other problem with this, uh, well, two problems. One is that I've heard to before is we're talking about probably planting a lot of these trees in areas like savannas and grasslands where there's high biodiversity uh, that could potentially be lost by planting massive amounts of trees. And then the last thing is it's unclear with tree planting uh, if, uh, if we're gonna get long-term storage because of climate change itself. Um, if you've looked at the massive forest fires in California and Australia in the last couple of years associated with steadily increasing warming, uh, we've lost massive amounts of carbon. In Australia, for example, the forest fires uh, in Australia uh, produced as much carbon dioxide release as all of the emissions from Australia for the year. Okay, And so as temperatures increase, uh, it's likely that a lot of the trees that we would plant uh, would be lost. Uh, and there's lots of problems with monitoring too. Uh, a lot of times trees are planted, uh, it's not done carefully, they're not monitored, they're lost very quickly. Uh, it's, it's not necessarily an approach in which you can be confident that you're going to get long-term, large-scale sequestration. It doesn't mean we shouldn't do it, because if you're planting trees in certain areas, you do get ecosystem benefits and, and other benefits in terms of hydrology and so forth, uh, but it, it is not by any means, in my opinion, a silver bullet. Right. Okay, so we've talked about the technologies, we've talked about uh, some of their potential, we've talked about some of their risks, we've talked about how they're uh, being deployed in the real world, particularly with private sector uh, companies. That actually reminds me, uh, Will, you mentioned a company called Stripe and, and their efforts. I've actually never heard of Stripe. What, what does that company do? Yeah, Stripe is, a, is a, a technology company. I think it's in the Silicon Valley, and it, uh, it uh, provides uh, software so that companies can accept uh, payments and and uh, manage their businesses online in, in other ways. Okay, interesting. Yeah, Microsoft, of course, I'd, I'd heard yeah. of, but not straight. <laughs> um, so let's move on to the last kind of substantive question I want to ask you about carbon dioxide removal, which is about governance. Um, we had an episode a few weeks ago where we talked about solar geoengineering with David Keith. Um, you know, there's some overlap between this topic and that one. They're very different, of course, but but I think there's some overlap. And, you know, one of the most interesting areas that came up around solar geoengineering is concepts and challenges around governance and international cooperation. Um, 
you know, this is a very broad question, so please feel free to answer it however you think appropriate. Um, but, you know, what are some of the major governance issues that come to your mind when we think about the large-scale deployment of carbon dioxide removal, regardless, you know, and, and I know this will vary from technology to technology as well. So, so however you want to answer that, uh, leave it in your hands. Yeah. So uh, governance of these technologies would probably have to happen at both the, the national level and the international level, depending on, on, the, on the technology. In some of these cases, you have technologies uh, that could affect the global commons or could affect other countries. And you're probably going to need uh, some kind of international uh, treaty regime to, to be involved. For example, if you're going to put uh, alkalinity into the oceans or fertilize the oceans with iron, uh, it, it's going to have impacts uh, in, the, in the global commons, right? And so probably the, the law of the Sea Convention or the London Dumping Convention or the Convention on Biological Diversity are, are going to be involved uh, in, in those cases. Uh, in some cases, uh, uh, such as enhanced mineral weathering and direct air capture, for example, most of the impacts are likely to be at the national level. And so uh, you may be looking at things like in the United States, if you were to deploy this, uh, the National Environmental Policy Act, right, which requires environmental impact statements for large-scale projects, or uh, in, in cases where you might have um, uh, fine particulates, as I indicated, from grinding up uh, uh, things, you might have regulations on the Clean Air Act or mining regulations. Uh, some of these, it's, it's, it's going to be a question of how much we want to extend governance at the international level. For example, with bioenergy and carbon capture, uh, most of that would probably be regulated at the national level. It's, it's going to be land use questions, uh, areas we're going to carve out for, for planting biofeedstocks. Bio but if you're going to massively raise food prices in other parts of the world because you're diverting agricultural lands now to... Uh, to develop these uh, dedicated uh, biofuel uh, stocks, um, will the rest of the world have a right uh, to demand that you look at what those impacts are, right? Especially since raising these food prices will, will, could affect some of the world's most vulnerable peoples in areas such as sub-Sahara Africa, right? And so maybe the Paris Agreement uh, might decide that uh, countries that want to make pledges in this context have to take into account those uh, potential adverse impacts. Uh, but this is, again, in very early stages, uh, as, as is true with the technologies. In parallel, countries really only are starting to, uh, to discuss this. And they're doing it with great hesitation, uh, going back to one of the things you said at the beginning, you know, why aren't we just decarbonizing our economy? A lot of these countries uh, make that argument, though, of course, simultaneously, while not decarbonizing their economies. So uh, I think in the next couple of years, you will start to hear more discussion of governance than you have. But uh, at, at this point, uh, it's largely uh, 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 academics that are making those uh, uh, arguments. Right. Very interesting. And similar to the solar geoengineering discussion, you know, we're, we're going to I would expect that we're going to watch this play out in policy circles in the years to come. It's going to be very, very fascinating. Yep, I think we are. It, it largely out of despair in some ways. I mean, there's, as, as, as you know, with the solar radiation discussion, there are, there are some profound risks in, in that context, but we, we may have no choice uh, given what the impacts of, of, 
of unchecked climate change would be in the world. Right. Well, on that uh, somewhat downbeat note, I'm going to turn it upwards uh, for uh, the end of our conversation and ask you uh, the same question that we ask all of our guests, which is what's at the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack. So something you've watched or heard or listened to related to the environment or maybe related to something else uh, that you would enjoy uh, or that you have enjoyed and would recommend to our listeners. And I'll uh, just start us off very briefly. Uh, I live in Michigan, and as some of our listeners may know, there were two dam breaches that happened in Michigan uh, a couple weeks ago because we had heavy rains. Uh, My basement flooded, uh, so that was fun. But um, there's a really, really interesting um, question and answer article uh, that just went up on the RFF website uh, by Margaret Walls and Elizabeth Wasson, who is our producer uh, for the podcast. And it's it's a really, really informative piece. It's called Dam Breaches in Michigan Raise Questions for Dam Maintenance Around the Nation. So if you're interested in kind of what Uh, some of the issues around the the dams in Michigan and what it might tell us about the national context and the the sort of condition of of dam infrastructure around the U.S., I would highly recommend this piece. It's really fascinating. Um, But how about you, Will? What's on the top of your stack? Yeah, well, it's it's more of a more of an image. I mean, one of the one of the things that's been interesting during uh, the uh, the worldwide lockdown related to COVID nineteen is the uh, reemergence of of wildlife, uh, many times in urban areas, and so right. we've seen right huge amounts of of elephants, caribou, uh, porcupines, you name it, uh, and. One of the things I think it reminds us is, uh, you know, going back to what we talked about at the beginning, is that we we share the earth uh, with these species, and we have to find a way to coexist. And uh, these species um, uh, reemerging at a time when uh, when we're in lockdown emphasizes the fact that in many cases we haven't found a way uh, to to effectively coexist and protect their interests. And so. Uh, it's it's an opportunity to remind people of kind of the the beauty and the grandeur of nature and the fact uh, that uh, we have to find a way uh, to uh, to minimize our our footprint on Earth in a way that we can coexist with species that provide us a lot of direct benefits and also provide us with a lot of joy. Cheers! Very nicely said. Um... Well, uh, we'll end it there, and uh, thank you again, Will Burns, uh, for joining us on Resources Radio to talk about carbon dioxide removal. It's been a really fascinating discussion. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to Resources Radio. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of resources for the future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.